If you would, open to Acts 1. So we continue um, our exposition, the Apostles' Creed. This morning we will look at, He ascended into heaven. The phrase, He ascended into heaven. Acts 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while they will, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Al Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This ends the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts this morning. Uh, Jesus told his disciples on many occasions, as we looked at last week, about his death, about his resurrection. Um, And when he was dead, they they weren't expecting him to raise. As a matter of fact, they were incredibly surprised when they saw him. Now, last time we looked at John's account and the almost empty tomb. Uh, the account of the grave cloths left in the tomb where uh, John and Peter first experienced the reality of his resurrection, and it was on the third day. Now, we closed last, last time looking at the progression um, of spiritual sight that was granted to them as they viewed or looked into the tomb, and then you know John came, he walked into the tomb, and they realized the truth and reality of our Lord's resurrection. So having dealt with the problem of sin, bringing its guilt and shame upon his own body, on the tree, there he was crucified, and the resurrection, of course, was then, as the scripture says, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. We're assured of our own resurrection because of his resurrection. And the Father's resurrection... I should say, uh, Christ's resurrection was the Father's amen to Jesus' words, it is finished. It is finished, he said on the cross, amen, he raised from the grave on the third day, validating his work, validating the worth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then uh, we read here in verse 3 what he did for 40 days after his resurrection. And it is that he further taught them about the kingdom. Now, it's interesting that Luke describes the focal point of the teaching and preaching of Jesus during those 40 days. 
Now, the purpose of that delayed ascension, if you will, was for him to focus or get their focus onto the kingdom of God. That is the rule and reign of God, the, the sovereignty of God. It was Jesus here saying to his disciples that this world and history and the future, it's all in the palms of his hands. He's in sovereign control. The incarnate, risen Son of God. And all things happen because he decrees them. Amen? Nothing is by chance. They, they don't happen because of luck. He's the one who was worthy to receive the seven-sealed scroll and the only one who could possibly open it and then implement the content within. He rules, he reigns, and he preaches to them the kingdom of God. That is his reign and his rule. So in the first place, we see uh, Luke's description to the presence of Christ for 40 days between resurrection and Pentecost. That's the first thing we see. Secondly, we see the perplexity um, of the disciples by the questions that they ask. And if you notice in verse 6, when they had come together, they were asking him, and this is the question that they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They were lacking proper insight. Calvin, John Calvin, in his very made a very famous comment in his commentary on Acts, and he says, and I quote, there are as many errors in this question as there are words. Amen. You see, they were wrong as to the sense of victory that Jesus had accomplished on the cross and his resurrection. They were wrong as to the constitution of the kingdom that Jesus was building. And they were wrong to the power that builds that kingdom. Their thinking wasn't right. And you know what is incredible about this? Is that even they misunderstood Jesus' teaching. Now you would think that the master teacher, Jesus Christ, you would always understand him. That's not the case. They did not understand the master teacher, the Lord of glory. They misunderstood his teaching on the kingdom. They were slow in getting it, but notice how patient the Lord is, amen? We have to be patient with our brothers and sisters who perhaps don't understand sovereign grace and salvation, is an example. He's very patient, and he goes over these principles again and again and again. And they they ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They're still focused on Israel. That's the wrong perspective. They're still focused on their ethnicity. Wrong perspective. They're still focused on their nationality as Jews. Wrong perspective. They're still focused on Jerusalem. Jesus said, look, it begins here. But it goes to Judea. It goes to Samaria. It goes to the utter ends of the earth. Preaching the kingdom. The middle wall of separation has been broken down in Christ. Jew, Gentile have become what? One. The promise of Abraham is being fulfilled. Through your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So he's going to straighten out their thinking. They're going to get it. Amen? 
read the epistles, read the rest of Acts, you see they get it. They got it. Done. We're the fruit of that, amen, to this day. So then there's the promise of this angel, right? The disciples see Jesus go up into heaven. This is something they saw. They witnessed this with their eyes. He rose into the sky, literally, bodily, and he disappeared into a cloud. And this cloud, of course, is a picture of the presence of God. He ascended into heaven. So the Bible and the Apostles' Creed proclaim that in the ascension, 40 days after his rising, Jesus entered or re-entered, if you will, heaven in a new way, in a momentous way. And as J.I. Packer writes, thenceforth, he sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, ruling all things in his Father's name and with the Father's almightiness for the long-term good of his people, end quote. So when we, when we read about or talk about the right hand of God, we're not referring to a palatial or, or luxurious location, though it is. Amen? It is. But this is describing Christ's regal function. His regal function. His royal occupation, to put it in human terminology. His... his royal occupation. We read in Acts 2, he has, Christ, been exalted to the right hand of God. Romans 8, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God. Ephesians 1, verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He rules over all, amen? And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That is, he re-entered his pre-incarnate state. He came from heaven to take on a body. That body lived, that body died, that body was buried, that body raised up, and that body ascended into glory. Ephesians 4.10, he who descended, okay, he, he who came out of heaven into the lower places, begin, in the womb of a woman, lower places, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Okay, now when he ascended, this, this is not a rain cloud, beloved, that he ascended into. This isn't a puffy, white, beautiful cloud. This is a cloud of glory, a glory cloud that which surrounds the very presence of Almighty God. Remember the pillar of cloud that Israel is led by. Pillar of cloud, pillar of fire by night. Remember the pillar of cloud that descended upon the temple as Solomon took the throne. Or that bright cloud of glory that descended upon our Lord Jesus Christ when he was there with Peter, James, and John in the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay, that's a glory cloud. Not a rain cloud. In Matthew 17, we read, when his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. See, that, the transfiguration, was a preview of what he is now like. What Peter witnessed 
was a preview of our, what our Lord is now like. Now you can imagine here in Acts, when Jesus ascended, having experienced as he did on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus transformed into glory before his very eyes. It's very likely that at this point he turned to the other disciples and said, hey, we've seen this before, don't worry, he'll be back. It's happened before, and he came back to normality. But he did not. So, while they're standing there, gazing into heaven, the angel says to them, why do you stand here gazing into heaven? The way he was taken up, he, in like manner, will return. So when we think about him coming in the clouds, it's not rain clouds. It's a cloud of glory. Amen? Now, the rain clouds or the puffy, beautiful white clouds should remind us of that. But that's not the kind of cloud he's coming on. Now, this provides for us, first of all, um, an explanation as to why Jesus never appeared to them again. Okay? He ascended into a cloud, a cloud of glory. And had not the angel said this, they'd probably have been looking for them, looking for him, rather, for years thereafter. And they wouldn't have gotten on with their mission. So this is a very public statement. It's a final thing that he did. And will remain that way until he comes again. In glory, amen? So another thing we see here is that Jesus is visibly being promoted. The sovereign son of God who took on a human body was lifted up, taking his humanity to the throne. And as John Owen wrote, the dust of earth is at the right hand of God. He had a a real body like ours, fully man, fully man, fully God. And now he re-enters heaven in this glorified body that was crucified. He ascended. And this is what he is like now. Okay? Now, when I read this, this is not what Jesus looks like. This is what he is like. Revelation 1. John, you know, he hears behind him a loud voice. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. It's nonsense about these people who said they've been to heaven. They saw Uncle Bob. They came back. Some little kid, 11 years old. I've been to heaven. Right. Don't waste your money. Paul actually went to heaven and came back, right? Paul was caught up. And he said, I I can't even describe you. And yet these people do, amen? It's nonsense. 
This guy falls as a dead man. This is John. He falls as though dead. So again, this is a description not of what Jesus looks like. This is a description of what he is like in his glorified, incarnate state, having ascended bodily. So at the ascension, there was certainly a change of location for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Earth to heaven. It's a change of location. But also, there's a change in Christ's human nature. is resurrected on earth. He walked around and the disciples touched him. He ate food. But here in this ascension, there's a change. Now, in his divine nature, and the essence of the nature of Almighty God never changes, amen? But in this human body that he was in, it did change. As a matter of fact, remember Mary at the tomb? clinging to Jesus, and he said, don't cling to me, I have not yet ascended. Okay? I'm, I'm here still, like this. I have not yet ascended. Once he ascended, there's a change. So there then, that's the nature of the ascension. And now we'll spend the rest of our time looking at the necessity of the ascension. Philippians 3, verse 20, we're told that our citizenship... Is where? In heaven, now, already. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Amen? His body was transformed. In Romans, we're called... We're justified and we shall be glorified. But not without his ascension. You see there the necessity of his ascension to guarantee our ascension. That is a glorified body in heaven. Remember Jesus said in John 14, the night before he was crucified, to give assurance to his own disciples. He said, in my father's house are many Rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. And may we not misunderstand that passage, beloved. Many think Jesus is putting together estates up there. As though he's building houses. With views of, you know, the streets of gold. Stuff, things like that. And depending on how big your ministry is, will determine how close your mansion will be to the throne. Have you heard that nonsense before? Many rooms is actually dwelling places. Okay? In the image of dwelling places or rooms is taken from the ancient world where a father who has sons who would become married, they would add dwelling places to their homes. So they would live with the father. They would dwell with their father. A son would marry, they'd, they'd add a dwelling place. Or like an apartment add-on. So the sons and daughters, the children and their children, would all live under one roof or with many dwelling places. With their father. And it still occurs in Israel today. When we uh, took a tour there in 2008, I saw all these homes with additions that weren't finished. And I asked our tour guide, and he said, so long as they're under construction, you don't have to pay taxes. 
so they never finish them. And these are these dwelling places, you know, they're adding on. So it's one shared house with many rooms, and the idea that such is heaven. And he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you to his disciples. So his house is easily able to accommodate many attached dwelling places. Now, Jesus is not up there pounding nails, beloved. He's not putting the final lacquer coat on the woodwork in your little dwelling place. You hear well-meaning folks like, uh, uh, you know, the late Keith Green in one of his songs. You ever listen to him? I still do. And he said this. He goes, I remember one of his songs. Remember this, Mark? Jesus has been preparing a home for me for 2,000 years. And if this world took six days and that home is taking 2,000 years, hey, man, this is like living in a garbage can compared to what's going on up there. (laughs) The context is this. He's going to prepare a place by going the way of the cross. That's what that means. His house is a manner of destiny built upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. Very important. So what he meant was, look, guys, in the upper room that night, I must die. I must be buried. I have to be resurrected and I have to ascend in order to prepare your place. So the place is already there. But there's no entering that place without the finished work of Christ. He's not up there building stuff just because he was a carpenter on earth. Amen? I go to prepare. That is, I go the way of the cross. That's the preparation. That was the preparatory work. His death, his burial, his resurrection, and ascension guarantees your dwelling place. Also, it was necessary that he ascends in order to send forth the Holy Spirit. John 16, turn there you will. Verse 3. Verse 4. I've said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for I do not go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare it to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine 
and he will declare it to you. In Acts 10, do you remember that Peter was amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit also was poured out upon Gentiles? So he, he, it was necessary, he ascend, right, in order that was part of the preparatory work that he would do in assuring his disciples, that includes us, our dwelling place. Also, his ascension was necessary in order to send the Holy Spirit. Now, it was also necessary he ascend so as to stand as our great high priest. He had to ascend in order to take that position. Hebrews 4, Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. Hebrews 7. The former priests of Israel were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, another misunderstanding we don't want to fall into is this. Some people read that and they teach that Jesus is before the Father, hands folded, on his knees, praying for us. Praying and and praying and pleading on our behalf. But when we read that he ever lives to make intercession means that his very presence in heaven in this glorified body is his intercession. Okay? Very important. Intercession is not prayer. Intercessory prayer is prayer. Okay? Now, the concept of intercession can be summarized as mediating, as going between, as representing one party to another. like in legal situations, but it's not limited to that. Intercession happens in courts every day. It happens in business meetings every day. Intercession happens as as lawyers stand and represent their clients before the judge, or as secretaries go between their boss and clients, or their boss and other associates, or whatever representing one to another. There's nothing spiritual about it. There's nothing prayerful about it. It involves delegation. Intercession involves authority. But more than anything else, it boils down to proper representation. Are you with me, beloved? That is to represent or represent again. Now, if we think of it in terms of creation, this will help our understanding to to realize Jesus isn't up there praying for each one of us, okay? 
Adam originally was supposed to represent God on planet Earth. Amen? Managing, governing, and ruling for God because God delegated to him that responsibility. God told Adam what he wanted, and Adam was to then represent God to the rest of the world forever. Literally, he was God's intercessor or mediator on the earth. Adam failed. Amen? We know this. Look in the mirror. Adam failed. And God sent another human called the last Adam to do what the first Adam was supposed to do and to fix what the first Adam messed up. So Christ came to represent God to man and represent humanity to God. And only he could do that as the God-man. He could perfectly represent God to man and perfectly represent man to God as the perfect man. So intercession is representation. Christ is the acceptable representation. He is the acceptable sacrifice accepted and received by the Father. Amen? So his very presence in heaven is his intercession. He's completed his work successfully, representing us at the right hand of the Father. So because of his worth... His work on earth worked. Are you with me? Because of his worth, as the sinless son of God, his work on earth worked. And he has ascended. And he is representing us before the Father. He intercedes for us. He stands, that is, to make proper representation of all those that are his. He represents fallen sinners in the first Adam as redeemed by the last Adam. He's not verbally praying for each one of us. Now, he did pray for us on earth, amen, before he made atonement. That's the high priestly prayer of John 17. There, Jesus prayed, Father, I'm not praying for the world. I'm not praying for them, but I'm praying for all those you have given me. So he prays for them, and after praying for them, he makes atonement for them. Just like Israel's in the Old Testament, the priests of Israel would pray on behalf of Israel. They didn't pray for the world, they prayed for Israel, and then the high priest would go make atonement on behalf of Israel, which teaches us that Jesus only atoned for those that are his. He did not atone for everyone in the whole wide world without exception. Those he prayed for, he made atonement for. And he now intercedes for us. He now stands representing us, guaranteeing all of those that are his, one of those dwelling places, in a glorified body, new heaven, new earth. So his victorious, ascended, glorified presence is his very intercession for us. Amen? 
If you want to think that Jesus is there praying, you can think that. But that's not what it means. I've heard some people that I just admire teach that he's praying for us like that. That's not what intercession means. Intercessory prayer is prayer. Intercession is not prayer. Intercessory prayer is prayer. Intercession is to represent properly. So his intercession required his ascension guaranteeing our entrance into heaven. So he, the one who's ascended, has entered behind the veil of the Holy of Holies, if you will. Amen? He is there guaranteeing all his redeemed children will enter there also. Hebrews 9. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Mediation, intercession. He stands as our representative. Having been received into the presence of the Father, guaranteeing that we too, by way of union with Christ, will also receive the same. Glory. Ephesians 2.5 When we were dead in our trespasses... He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, he had to ascend to do that. And he's there now, properly representing us and will welcome us into his presence upon the death of this body or upon his return is guarantee. Remember when Stephen was preaching in Acts 7? There he is preaching. And the Sanhedrin become outraged. They gnash their teeth and they stone him. And this is what we read. Acts 7 verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And there, Christ is standing to receive his saint. We read that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, amen? And he stands up to receive his own. It's the picture. He's redeemed us. He's gone before us, and he is our guarantee that we too shall enter his presence, all by way of his ascension. So there you see the nature of the ascension and the necessity of the ascension. We read in Hebrews, he must reign until his enemies are under his feet. Hebrews 1 tells us, or asks the question, to which of the angels said he at any time, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. When God 
having raised him from the dead, set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principalities, all powers, all might, all dominion, in every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. All things were put under his feet. He was given to be head over all things to the church, Ephesians 1, 20 to 22, and received dominion and glory and a kingdom. Amen? There, the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, he goes to prepare a place. He's not building stuff. Preparation was the way of the cross. Death, burial, resurrection, ascension. Your place is guaranteed, not only because he did it, but because he also stands to this day and intercedes on our behalf. He mediates on our behalf. He rightly represents all those that are his, guaranteeing that dwelling place when we die. Amen? Amen.